0: Cavalcade Audio Productions presents *Star Drifter*, the science fiction audio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book three, Risk Analysis, Chapter Twenty Seven. anyone was out there until they banged on the hull. One, two, three thumps. The comm panel showed incoming hails, but it wouldn't respond to my touch. I tried to get my companion to listen and to unlock systems, but that was no more productive than before. SOP regarding the rescue of dead, unresponsive vessels did include tapping the hull to see if there was a reply. This was only of value, of course, when a specialized vibration sensor was placed against the polinium plates outside so as to pick up any responding vibrations. My com ring, though dead, could still communicate this way, and I smacked the hatch with the flat of my hand so that the ring tap-tapped against the metal. There was a pause, then two more thumps, followed by a single one. I mimicked the beat so they'd know I was a real person and not just an engine process, making periodic clangs in a pattern of threes. Without a proper airlock, we had to be taken fully aboard the Fleet Tug. This was a relatively small ship, but a very powerful one, designed to go out and pick up stranded vessels. It had lots of link-up hardware on all sides for hauling large ships and boats, but also a modest bay on the top expressly for stalled out fighters, dead couriers, broken shuttles, and other small craft. Ship recovery techs carefully attached portable thruster units to the free jump's hull. I heard this activity inside as a bunch of heavy clangs and bangs. They operated the units remotely and in a few minutes had us aboard the tug safe and sound but locked away inside a dedicated quarantine section of the bay. That was a little excessive, but probably just standard procedure. From their point of view, ours was a ship of no known configuration. We could have been anybody, coming from anywhere, bringing home any kind of trouble. Emergency medicos wearing airtight suits brought me out and strong-armed me directly into a decontamination unit. I warned them that the other man was in bad shape and might not survive being unplugged. This wasn't their first go-around with cyborgs, apparently. When they handed him down through the ship's hatch a few minutes later, he was still out cold, but his face was back in its proper place, and the seizure seemed to be at an end. They hustled him off to the medbay. Though I learned an awful lot about my jump companion in the weeks and months to come, Whether from deep-delving background checks by a small army of intelligence researchers, continual status reports, and various medical, mental, and biomechanical assessments, that one glimpse of the guy lying in seemingly perfect repose upon the back of a Medico roller retreating through the companionway would be the last time I ever set eyes on him. I also told the doctors that I'd been hit with a radiation burst of unknown strength or composition for at least several seconds' time. For my honesty, I got a blisteringly hot shower and complete scrub down with stiff brushes all over my body, even those places stiff brushes should not touch. I didn't complain. They then confirmed that their med sensors were showing some systemic cell damage, consistent with moderate neutron exposure. They gave me a goopy-looking anti-rad concoction with a long needle to the thigh. That hurt a lot, and it gave me terrible diarrhea that first day. But neither of those things were as bad as internal bleeding or organ failure, so I still didn't complain. The medicos assured me, in fact, that I would be perfectly fine within a week or so, and they turned out to be right. The entire time, uniformed characters on the other side of the quarantine glass asked questions, lots and lots of questions, which I refused to answer. I did give them contact information for both Meerschaum and United Humanity, which they were inclined to ignore in favor of their own military interrogation protocols. This was a fleet vessel, after all. There were also some self-important types aboard, from the Route Management Authority, who acted all intimidating, but they didn't even know what to ask. What have you done to us? Christmas demanded, and I really thought he was going to dash at me. He stood in the companionway to the cockpit, hands bunched at his sides, eyes radiating fury. But Barney and two of his people were just climbing in from the airlock behind, and they made for an impressive trio especially since they were all visibly armed, holsters strapped outside their pressure suits. It's not what you think, I replied the moment my helmet was off, trying to nip any rash acts in the bud. Behind us, in the opposite direction down the companionway, Dieter stuck his head out from engineering. He must have wondered what the commotion was all about, but he cursed when he saw us standing there. The engineer jumped back into his room and resealed the hatch with a metallic clump. I stepped over and hit the comm button next to it. Dieter, don't smash anything we need. This isn't what it looks like. But he didn't reply. Dieter! Hi, Stina said to the newcomers as their own helmets came off. Her expression unchanged from the last time I'd seen her from every time I'd seen her. Hello, Barney replied with a friendly smile. I'm Barney. Don't you come any closer, John shouted then from his seat at the table, as if he'd just noticed them. He jumped to his feet, looking terrified, wild-eyed, manic. He held a plastic spoon in his hand in a threatening manner. The armed group complied. They didn't approach and they didn't draw their weapons. They didn't even laugh, which I thought was kind. "'There's a story to this,' I said. "'Just calm down, everybody, and let me explain.' "'You sold us out,' Chris challenged, finally taking those menacing steps my way. But I kept him at arm's length, holding my helmet out between us. He swung with all his might and missed, then kept trying.' He was scary when his dander was up. I did not. They want to help. Are they UH? Because if they're not UH, they have no reason to help us. And you brought them here. Quit doing that, would you? They want the spy ring, not us. They can help Mavis. And they can help the ship. Team wouldn't help us. Chris railed, then slipped on some trash and fell to his knees. He popped right back up again, though, and finally got a clip in on my face, right over the eye. It stung, but he hadn't really connected. And anyway, I'd been a super jerk to him all this time, so he owed me at least that much. Enough, Barney snapped and finally came forward, pushing Chris back like he was a rag doll. The big man held out one hand to keep my ML at a distance and placed the other on the sidearm at his hip. That gesture got through to Chris at last, and he just shook his head, stepping back bitterly, hands raised. Put them down, Barney told him. We're not here to hurt or arrest anyone. We're not with team. We just want to talk. You collect the garbage on Centerline Avenue, Steena said then, still unmoved. I've watched you. Beside her, John remained ready to defend his life, deadly spoon shaking in his hand, eyes round and darting, sweat beating on his upper lip. I do, Barney confirmed, the warm smile back in place, his hands dropping peacefully to his sides. You must be Stina. Ejak told me about you. He wasn't supposed to. He's kind of a butthead. Hey! I complained. No name-calling. If you're not with Team, then who are you? Chris demanded, though he looked at me while he spoke, fury evident. That was as good an opening as we were going to get, so while I removed my pressure suit, I explained. Christmas threw up his hands over me, never having suspected my roommate was a cop. I pointed out, heatedly, That I never claimed to be some kind of spy or operative or whatever, so he could take all his judgments and stick them someplace intimate. He tried to get at me again over that, but once more Barney intervened, though this time throwing a frustrated glance at me, as if it was my fault. "'Would you get Dieter out of there, please?' I asked peevishly, pointing back down the companionway. "'This isn't helping.' Our mission leader called him via ShipCom and over the engineer's personal device, but he picked up neither. Sorry, but he's hyper-vigilant about the engineering tech aboard, I explained. It's all classified, and no one else is allowed to see it. Well, where's your captain? asked one of the other people. A dark woman in her thirties or so that Barney introduced as Joanne. She was Stasek's remnant cyber-neural tech consultant, on record as a doctor of sports medicine specializing in nerve regeneration and associated therapy at the big med center aboard station. She had done some cyber-neural work on the side for station security, though, before team had rolled in, but that relationship had been obfuscated before the dismantling of Milag Vernier's police force. She'd become close friends with several people at the hospital and on the force, who'd lost their jobs in the big changeover. Doc Jo N. didn't bear much love for team as a result. It was this woman who had built a brain pattern of the prisoner who'd tried to kill me, though since her time was very limited, it still wasn't ready. When I inquired about the prisoner himself, Barney just said the man was alive and healthy, his ruined elbow patched up for future reconstructive procedures. I showed the doctor Mavis's sleep pod, which was rolled closed at the moment. Those things didn't have any windows in them, but there were big readout interface panels, and she spent quite a while checking over vitals and such. She'd never seen a unit quite like this one before, she revealed, but didn't think there'd be any problems thawing our captain out. Chris had been talking to Barney the whole time, and since my roommate was easy to talk to, he'd somehow managed to put the ML at ease. They were even laughing when I came back. Their glances made me wonder what or who was so funny, and my ears burned. The other stay-set guy just stood in a corner where he could see everyone looking interested and detached at the same time. John had backed to the opposite side of the common room. He still looked scared, but had finally put down his mighty tool of destruction. So technically you're working for Ejock now? That's how it'll read on the reports when we finally have to start making them to somebody, my roommate replied. We'll be undercover assets of admin security. Maybe you guys will have to be as well. If you want to avoid military prison, with your professional reputations intact, it's going to require someone with a little juice to make it all stick. They looked at me again and both burst out laughing. It was a very hurtful day. I got a call then from R&D. I took it in gunnery, door closed, audio only. It was Gaza. Can you come in? There's been developments with Hull Design. I'm in the middle of something. I can't really get away right now. Can we do this later? Only if you trust me with your career decisions. What's that mean? She sounded amused. Hull Design is going ahead with the takeover of R&D. They'd come too far along to just abandon it, I guess. But they were getting some mighty pushback from the other sub-Ds, not just ours. Most of that fell on deaf ears, but not everything. Gendis will be remaining autonomous. And we just got word that weaponry is being spun off into our own section, fully on par with them. From this point on, R&D will only have three sub-departments, hull design, power generation and distribution, and weaponry. Each of us will be independent, but working together. How on earth did you do it? <laughs> Pure charisma. Okay, I can be there in say ninety minutes. She said that would be fine and rang off. When I came out, the doctor had Mavis's bed opened up and was plugged into her cranial data port. Anything? Well, statistics come back green, so it's not hardware-related. And I'm not seeing any neural damage or inflammation that could account for coma-like behavior, so I don't think it's organic either. It has to be something in her power suspension routines. She has the factory settings for that in her head, burned onto some restoration cache. If internal diags detected any code rot, that should have kicked in and replaced the faulty strings with copies of the original code. Why didn't it? I don't know. Is it a bug? I don't know, she repeated. Well, what about, let me find the problem, okay? Her tone was perfunctory, so I said thanks and went on ahead. By this time, Dieter's behavior was annoying everyone. Chris went back and banged on the door to engineering, but it hurt his fist. He returned and grabbed John's favorite cup, first looking at the man and barking, SHUT UP! He clomped at the hatch with the open end of it, very hard, several times. It made a lot of noise which Dieter could not have missed. Still no reply. If he's destroying proprietary hardware and IP in there, I observed, then we're stuck. Are you sure you can't override the lock and open that door? Chris called to Stina. Yes. We waited for an explanation, but she apparently thought that was one. They designed this ship from the ground up with preservation of patented technology in mind, John spoke loudly. At some point, he'd calmed down and was now back in his place at the table. We trooped to the common room. He had a diagram of Shady Lady floating in front of him, and he pointed out highlighted areas as he spoke. "'Engineering is on its own control in electrical circuits and draws power from inside itself. It's like a vault.' "'That's just stupid!' I spat, feeling very annoyed. "'What if he's had a heart attack or something in there?' "'Well, Mavis could open it. Ship's captain has override capabilities for all systems.' "'I guess we'll have to wait,' Barney put in, looking like the only person okay with doing so. "'Don't you have work today?' I asked him, but he shook his head. "'I called in. Pulled a groin muscle at practice last night. It's really killing me.' "'We had practice last night?' "'No.' He looked at me like I was a strange animal. "'You really aren't trained at this, are you?' "'I think I have something.' The doctor called from the companionway, and we all filed over, even John and Stina. Right here, Doc Joanne explained, showing us lines of computer code on the display panel of the bed, all meaningless to me. And again here in the variance assessment application. What is it? Chris asked, as lost as I was. Malware, both John and Stina said together, looking at the screen. Why didn't you see it before when you went over all this? We didn't go over at all, John answered simply. That would be impossible to do by eye. It would take years. We were looking at the firmware source code, Stina added with a shrug. No, this came from a high-level intrusion script, the doctor stated. Someone deliberately put it there, and I'm guessing it wasn't the captain herself. How hard would it be for someone to do that to her? I asked. "'Depends on the circumstances. If the cyborg is the careful type, it could be very hard. Wireless intrusions are easy enough to guard against, but working with strangers or the general public can be risky, especially other cyborgs. But really, anyone with malicious intent is a threat.' "'But she didn't work with strangers,' I said pointlessly, because maybe she did. Maybe one in particular.' We all looked at each other. I didn't want to say it, because that would make it real. Stina didn't have a problem going there, though. I think it was Dieter. But why? Chris mumbled, looking very confused. Mavis must have seen something in engineering, I supplied, imagining it now. She didn't recognize whatever it was or she'd have questioned him right then and there. But Dieter couldn't take the chance that she'd keep thinking about it, so he infected her code and stranded us. We were already stranded from the damage, RML said. Were we? I pressed. Has anyone else seen this supposed damage? Dieter played the classified hardware card from the very start. The only other person who got a look at what was going on in there is lying in a coma. But we weren't definitely hit in the fight, John argued. I saw all the initial damage assessments by the computer. Of course we were. But maybe it wasn't as difficult to repair as we were led to believe. Maybe the ship has been ready to fly for some time now. It explains why he won't come out, John agreed. Actually, it doesn't, I pursued. He has nowhere to go, and neither do we, so what could he hope to accomplish sitting in there like a petulant toddler? But then I trailed off. What? Barney asked. An emergency escape hatch. What hatch? Chris asked, confused. Alliance Shipbuilding Regs for Commercial Vessels, and this one still counts, state that engine rooms located near an exterior bulkhead have to have at least one secondary escape airlock. Big ships will have a bunch of them. But even something Shady lady size would have to comply with the law. Barney heard that and immediately turned away, calling someone on his personal comm. He spoke for several seconds, then stepped back, looking grim, but offering nothing. We would get an alert if someone opened the door, John stated, like it was a law of physics. You don't think he could run a bypass on that? Because I've known engineers who could do it in their sleep. But we place passive sensors all around the ship, Chris added. We know when anybody is out there. We didn't place them there. He did, I countered, and for the first time, SS1 and SS2 looked balked. That was halfway to being in emotion, so it was impressive to see on Stina anyway. There's no door like that on the schematic, John remarked, still refusing to believe it, and he made to go back and point this fact out. Nothing's on the hologram for engineering, I stated flatly. It's classified, remember? My exterior imagery in the library doesn't show one either. It wouldn't if it's classified, I snapped, because the repetition was pissing me off. We've been played. From the very start, he's had another agenda. At the beginning, he was probably just going to pass our long-range sensor data over to someone else. But when we were attacked, he saw an opportunity. Remember, Shady Lady's automated damage assessments didn't indicate Star Jump was knocked out. Dieter told us about that later. He said it would fail in mid-jump, based solely on his own professional assessment, which no one else could go in and confirm. Except Mavis, Steena stated, looking at our captain. We all did the same. Couldn't you bring her out of it? Barney asked the doctor. Sure, was the simple response, and she highlighted the guilty code strings on the monitor and hit delete. A moment later, Mavis just opened her eyes. She appeared confused for a bit, then turned her bald head to stare at us, the bright blueness of her artificial oculars startling and reassuring at the same time. Is the date I'm reading accurate? Yep. I told her, smiling, feeling very happy in fact. She was quiet for a bit, assessing the familiar and unfamiliar faces standing over her. Well, there's nothing like a good night's sleep, she commented at last. What did I miss? I had to get to R&D, so I could only stay long enough to give the captain a quick hug. We all did, those of us in her crew. Unexpectedly, Stina held on to her for a long time, crying like a baby, though never saying a word. It was awkward in the extreme, and therefore completely in keeping with the young woman. Barney introduced himself and his people, and started to explain. But Mavis held up a hand and looked my way. I need a report from you, Ajak. I know, I'll give you one. Right now I have to go or it'll look weird. We don't want to look weird. The irony that comment placed on her face made me laugh, and I put on my helmet. Once outside, I took a moment to stalk around to the anterior of the ship, deep in shadow. I popped on a tight suit lamp and looked for signs of the emergency airlock. The hull was covered in the black plates that made Shady Lady so hard to detect, and nothing seemed obvious at first. I finally noticed one particular plate that could easily have been covering a human-sized hatchway. On the station hull right below it were some subtle scuff marks, as if from booted feet, coming and going. I called the others inside to report what I'd found and then went back aboard the station. When I got to R&D, the place was in a tizzy, people bustling back and forth, some of them running across the big bay with hardware and printouts. Jake threw daggers at me from behind his desk, shouting as I passed by, This is all you're doing! The team kids were busy in the weaponry office packing up equipment and supplies again. They looked really excited, except for the three that had put in for transfer. I heard later that Floyd had refused to cancel those for them, the traitors. Gaza and Floyine were meeting with project management in the big conference room, but the kids told me I was supposed to join them when I arrived. This I did immediately, Though stopping first to grab a Joe from the Galliette and to get more angry commentary from CPM 06 Jacob Hammerhuls, who stomped out of his office, following me as I passed by. They don't need more management and hull design, so I'm sidelined. They've got me pegged for efficiency verification, rereading everyone else's forms and reports just to make sure they're all filled out right but here you are smelling like a rose. This was your plan all along, wasn't it? I just smiled and sipped my coffee. It tasted so good. You're a twerp! He shouted at my retreating back. A twerp! He got the attention of some of the guards standing around. They were used to Jake and his outbursts by now, or at least they'd learned to endure them. Project management had gotten a bit of a shake-up when team took over, just like everything else. It was now composed of a mix of admin and military muckety-mucks, and I'd only ever seen any of them at big department-wide meetings. They had their own security escort, some of whom stood at attention outside the room. They checked my ident before letting me pass. As it turned out, Only four of the project managers were in there with my two bosses. I walked over and sat next to Gaza and Floyd. I got looks because of the coffee, so I took another sip. A silver-haired woman in a team uniform and with the rank of eight watched me with curious eyes. I had no idea who she was. "'You don't fall into any regular category of personnel regarding this project, Mr. DeSantos,' she said. "'Is that a good thing or a bad thing?' "'It's a mighty uncomfortable thing,' she replied. "'You have the entire department on edge. "'I would never have an admin spook working for me if I had a choice. "'The B.O.D. is wrong on this point.' I'm stating that for the record. It's my right and my duty as an officer to do so. Okay, I replied quietly, then took another sip. I made slurpy sounds. Out of the corner of my eye, both Floyd and Gaza looked mortified. You have split priorities, she continued. You couldn't even be here on time when you were summoned. No one summons me. I interrupted firmly. I'm not team. I'm not even a corporate space citizen. I'm here because this is a meeting I want to attend. I will not waste time kowtowing to your pride or hierarchy. I helped uncover something nasty aboard this station, and I'm not certain yet how high up the rot here goes. I've also helped elevate weaponry to the status and respect it deserves. If you want a free jump warship that can actually fight a battle once it gets where it's going, then you need the best people for the job. Our department now requires a fleet liaison, and we expect CPS-07 Floyine Newellin to fill that position. We also need an admin liaison. And that would be you, I suppose? she asked. Accused, really. No, that would be CPM-06 Mator who is overdue for advancement, I might add, which I'll be looking into. Managers and the other sub-Ds who have been far less productive seem to be moving up just fine, so it rather stinks of cronyism. You don't outrank anyone in this room! A man in an ill-cut, dark blue suit sitting at her side bellowed. My original mandate from admin security was to look for gross inefficiency in R&D. That mission has taken me down some literal dark alleys, but it still stands. You people are going to help us build this ship for the Montero Commercial Federation or you're going to be replaced. I'm telling you this now as a matter of courtesy, a thing I'm not famous for and which I don't have in great supply. Now, is there anything else going on with you people that I need to hear about? This is ridiculous! The silver-haired woman spat, getting to her feet. Her companions and their escorts followed, all of them stalking out of the room in a tremendous show of fury. The two women left behind both stared at me with expressions composed of shock, fear, and hilarity. "'Where's the new office?' I asked after finishing off my Joe. "'I'll help the kids move our stuff.' They weren't having any of that, though. How had I pulled it off? I offered Mailbrot a deal. I guess he took it. Who was helping us on the BOD? Can't name names, sorry. I'm not even sure if it's a friend or an enemy. Didn't I know that pissing off project management was a bad idea? In the long run, probably, I answered. But we have to get this thing organized as soon as possible. Everyone will be expecting weaponry to be impressive with this amount of autonomy and resources at its disposal. They'll want to see some magic. Any ideas? Gaza actually had a few right then that had to do with a specialized DEW she'd heard tell was being developed somewhere in the black budget world. She had a contact in another star system and so ran off to send a classified message. Floy and I then spent some time having a private meeting of our own. Weaponry's new digs were going to be repurposed from an extra workshop of hull designs which meant there wasn't as much indiscriminate foot traffic going back and forth. I rather thought that was a shame, because you could always tell the general mood of the place by how manic or lackadaisical people seemed to be at any given moment. We would have our own team guards outside the room, a regular post with a desk and everything. It was scheduled to be built and installed within the week. Since the galliette was pretty far away... I put in to have another one built out on this end of R&D, just to save us some steps. The freshers were a walk now too, so I put in for those as well. The others all thought this excessive, but I figured if we were going to do it, we may as well do it right. Barney called at one point just to tell me our friend was still MIA, despite ex staysec detectives scouring all the companion ways. That was worrisome, but hardly surprising. Dieter would have had an escape plan in place for some time. How he intended to get out of the star system, I had no idea, but it was a safe bet he had one. With Team's help, we would have stood a reasonable chance of tracking him down. Once caught, though, he could and almost certainly would reveal everything he knew about Shady Lady. That was a bridge we were not prepared to cross just yet. Barney mentioned in passing that Mavis had gotten into engineering. She wouldn't let anyone go in with her, but then came out after only a few minutes, looking very pissed off. The good news was that Starjump was fine, not even repaired, completely undamaged. But she otherwise confirmed our worst expectations. Dieter had removed certain power connections to the fusion reactor. The jump engine might be fine, but it couldn't get the juice it needed to function. And by removed, she meant that the linkages were nowhere to be found. She even dug through the various parts and pieces covered in the tarps. Shady Lady wasn't going anywhere. My roommate rang off after this, and I went back to work feeling a bit bleak. Work can be a solace, especially if you're mired by other things. That being said, shifting boxes and furniture around got old after a while. I eventually appropriated a red delivery drone on its way back from some errand or other, using the magic override code. We had everything moved to the new space in record time after that, including our big tri dee table, which everyone thought we'd have to leave behind. Some supply officer noticed the machine doing mundane cargo work and came over to scold us for inappropriate use of company equipment. Gaza told him to write a complaint to our admin liaison and to get out of the way, my crap attitude clearly rubbing off. Gaz ordered takeout for us and it felt like another party, except for all the back pain. I'd done enough cargo work in my time that I knew how to lift and carry things properly, but in those circumstances, we always wore safety equipment and booster suits. That kind of stuff wasn't immediately available, and frankly, I didn't even think of it until the ache set in. At any rate, we got ourselves completely moved over to the latest new space by the end of the shift, including furnishings and equipment. That sat well with everyone even the three grumpy Gusses, who had been mollified by the promise of glowing citations from Floyd and Gaza to help them on their way. Barney called when I was getting ready to leave, stating that he and the Shady Lady crew would be waiting at the pub. I mentioned the problem with John and Stina getting caught and identified while walking around the station, which they'd been fearful of from the start. He assured me that, between a few of Stasek's hidden assets and SS1 and SS2's exceptional skills, the issue had been seen to, whatever that meant. Gaza wanted Floy and I to come over for dinner that night, her husband having prepared a soy roast, but I begged off, giving them that mums-the-word look that they were familiar with by now. I promised to stop by later, if possible, and encouraged Floyine to go anyway. I'll think about it, she said, then drew me aside and lowered her voice. I did a little digging about Nine Mailbrot, like you asked. Anything? I don't know. His last post is classified. I don't even know what part of space he was in. But I did learn that he was nominated and endorsed for this position by a B.O.D. member named Piani Tracel. I don't know anything about her, except that she's not a corporate space citizen. Foreign investor, big money, old money. But that's it. Does it help? It might, I replied, and then thanked her. Kissing out in the open would have been inappropriate, but I kissed her with my eyes and left. Dashing back to the apartment to shower and change, it had been a sweaty shift, I called Mailbrat's office to let him know that I appreciated how everything had worked out in R&D and that I anticipated it would lead to greater efficiency between our two offices. I was on the go and breathy-sounding, so I couldn't do the ironic tone of voice I was shooting for. I just got his voicemail anyway. No, I didn't know where this was leading. How could I? Though it was starting to look like Shady Lady and its crew might find their way out system after all, it was also looking like I had compelling reasons to stick around. I would have to go back to the Alliance, most likely, if only for the sake of filling out reports and debriefs and all that, but I could return when those were over. If commercial gunnery really was drying up, then maybe I could pursue a new career. Twin careers! Was that madness? Objectively, standing outside myself, it was almost possible to laugh. Neither covert security and investigations nor weapon design were in keeping with my long-term goals, but even this much wouldn't last forever. Time spent here could be less of a sidetrack than a shortcut if I just held out. And with the specter of this UH mission finally gone, the rest of it would be manageable. It was ego to believe all that, of course. <laughs> or maybe I was just a twerp, as Jake had pronounced. <sighs> CPMO6 Jacob Hammerholtz. The more I thought of it, the less I liked how that part had ended. Sure, the guy was a meathead. Loud and stupid. But he had done his job, whatever it was, through thick and thin and deserved better than this. He was owed something for being used and discarded by the company and by me. If there was any way I could help him, I probably would. Jake would have to take his lumps right now, but maybe something could be done for him in the future. Or not. (sighs) I mean... Even if I could find a way to restore him to his former position, no one in R&D would thank me for it. And then Dieter was standing in my way. I had tromped beneath a bridge, really only a few meters of shadow under a pedestrian overpass, and he just stepped out in front of me. He had on a long lab coat, the like of which many, many people on my Vernier wore as their daily attire. (laughs) Neither an egotist nor a twerp. I was a dreamer, lost in thought when vigilance mattered most. Oh, come on, I complained loudly. Again I'm jumped in the street? What's with this place? We need to talk, the engineer replied, and the hand in his coat pocket agreed with him for me. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins-Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icore by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.